Turn your Bibles to James chapter number 4 this morning. James chapter number 4. I want to ask you to be praying for uh, Sister Karen Colburn. She's uh, very sick. She's in the hospital and uh, probably going to be doing surgery or possibly tomorrow. Uh, I texted back and forth with her a little bit uh, yesterday, and she just wants church to know that she loves you and that she's praying for you and wants you to pray for her. Amen. So I, I covet your prayers on her behalf over this next week. And do be praying for our camp ministry. We're expecting God to do great things. Amen. And uh, I have to remind myself, uh, you know, it's been said already the devil's fighting us. And uh, I, I do think that's true. But I have to remind myself that there's nothing touches our lives, but the Lord allows it. And so even these things that the devil seeks to do in our life, God has a plan and a purpose in. And it's incumbent upon me and upon you when these things happen, uh, not just to look for the for the, uh, you know, machinations of the devil, but also look for the mercy and ministry of God in it. And look at it and say, now, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What are you trying to prove and what are you trying to elicit out of my life? And what are you trying to develop in me? Aren't you glad the Lord reigns supreme over it all? And uh, we're not victims, amen. We're victors in Christ Jesus. And uh, I'm excited about what God is going to do uh, this week. So you pray for us that God would bless our camp week and God would move and work on the hearts of the young people. James chapter number 4, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. James chapter number 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not even, hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. Pray that you'd take the administration of this service. Lord, I believe you've already had it, but we don't want to rest it from your hands. Lord, we want to trust and commit these next few moments to you. Lord, the best way we can do that is by having our hearts open to be sincere and humble and honest and to be willing to receive the preached Word of God, the truth of God as it's given unto us. Lord, I pray that you'd have perfect liberty today. I pray that there'd not be a single heart that closes itself towards your Word, but, Lord, that you would have complete liberty to walk these pews, to touch hearts, Lord, to speak to us. Lord, there could be someone under the sound of my voice that's lost. It wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size if that was true. I pray you'd show them their lost condition. Lord, I didn't know I was lost till you told me. And I pray you'd show them that they're lost, but show them they don't have to be lost, that they can be saved by the grace of God, 
Lord, that they can be eternally secure, that the matter of their salvation can be settled forever. Lord, that they can leave here with peace, knowing that they're a child of God. I pray that you would work and move on our hearts today, and may you get glory out of our response to it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we approach James chapter number 4 this morning, I think it would be appropriate to say that James is writing, obviously, to a group of people that are an absolute mess. He begins by describing the conflict and the discord, the anger and the vitriol that exists within this body and group of believers. And almost like a parent that's chiding, arguing children, he brings them to account for the way that they're living and the way that they're behaving. I'm interested this morning, particularly in a phrase that's used in verse number 10. He says this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he says, he shall lift you up. Now, that's interesting language because it bears in it the idea, not just of lifting someone that has fallen, not just as of of elevating someone that is low, but rather of a person being lifted out of a sick bed back to health and back to good nature. In other words, James, as he's writing to this group of people in James chapter number 4, he's writing to a group of people that their entire life is a mess, their spiritual life is a mess, their uh, social life is a mess, everything around them seems to be falling to pieces. And when he gets to verse number 10, here's what he says, if you'll humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He can lift you up out of the sick bed that you're in. You say, preacher, what is James talking about in this passage of Scripture. Well, I'd have you notice something with me before we get into our message. It's apparent when you read the book of James. James, of course, he's the half-brother in an earthly sense of the Lord Jesus. He was the pastor at the church of Jerusalem after that church had been scattered due to the intense persecution that was experienced in Acts chapter number 8, commencing with the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church. James sees his entire flock scattered to the winds. He's He sees them struggling and suffering. He sees them faltering and failing. He sees them grappling with coping with a new environment and a new world around him. And over and over again, he confirms a truth about them. Fifteen times in this book, James calls the people that he is writing to brethren. He said, preacher, why is that significant? Well, here's what I think James is saying. He's writing to a group of people. It's obvious that they are saved individuals. Aren't you glad you can be saved and know that you're saved? Uh, Let me just make this passing statement. If anybody tells you you cannot know that you're saved, that simply means they do not know whether they are saved. It doesn't mean you can't know that you're saved. First John tells us that these things have been written uh, that we may know that we are saved, that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad we can know that we are saved. James is writing to these people. They are saved people, but the language he uses obviously intimates that though they are saved, they are spiritually sick. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, spiritual sickness. Part of a way of life when you live in the great pollen bowl of East Tennessee is sickness. If you've not experienced it, don't worry. Just hang on. You won't be left out. Sooner or later, you will. And uh, people move here. They say, oh, it's beautiful. There's mountains and there's lakes and and cost of living and everything. All the landscape and terrain is beautiful. Then they get right here and realize you can't see it all for all the pollen. Amen. (laughs) And they don't put that on the travel websites, do they? 
And James is writing to a group of people, and the matter of their salvation is not in question. You can be saved and know that you're saved. I know that I'm saved today, not because I'm a good person, not because I'm a pastor or a preacher, not because I'm a Baptist, but because I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I'm saved. But just as your physical health, you can be alive, but be in a diminished state due to physical sickness. In the same respect, you can be alive in Jesus Christ, but your walk with Him is not thriving in the way that it should be. In fact, I would say a lot of the problem we have in New Testament Christianity in the West, and I've heard pastors lament this a lot. They say, well, our churches are full of unsaved people. And that may be true to a certain degree. I do think that church has uh, been conditioned to be a place not of spiritual nourishing and development, but rather through secular entertainment. That's conducive to people showing up that don't know the Lord and just kind of riding a pew. But I feel like probably a deeper problem is not just that we got unsaved people that regularly attend church. I I do think that that obviously can be a hindrance to the growth and development of the church. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think the problem is the sinners. I think the problem is the saved folk. I mean, I don't think the problem is... I mean, God, listen, He don't have no trouble dealing with sinners. He saves them by His grace. But rebellious, disobedient, hard-hearted, and cold-shouldered Christians, they're the people God struggles in dealing with. And I think the problem is not that our churches are chock full of unsaved people. I think our churches are chock full of saved people that are spiritually sick. Their walk with God is neglected, disregarded, and disdained. It's underdeveloped and undernourished. And as a result, we have the same problems that James identifies in this passage. Here this morning. Here's a question I want to ask you. How's your walk with God? How's your walk with God? Have you taken your temperature lately? Have you looked at the, in the, in the spiritual mirror lately? Have you examined the health and well-being and wellness of your walk with the Lord? Now, before we begin to preach, I just want to make this statement. If you're saved, you will always be saved. And this isn't a matter of trying to maintain a pace in our walk with God so that He don't leave us behind and we lose our salvation. I'm glad. Hey, listen, people will say, I remember years ago a a politician made the statement and said that Christianity ain't nothing but a crutch. Friend, he had it wrong. It ain't a crutch. It's a whole stretcher. Amen? I mean, it ain't just helping me along. If I don't get to heaven by the grace of God, I'm not going to get there at all. And if you're saved today, then you don't have to worry about losing your salvation. I don't want anything I say today for you to infer that that's what I mean. But I do believe that a person can be saved by the grace of God, serving God even within the local church, can be faithful in attending the house of God, but their walk with God to be sick and anemic and underdeveloped and debilitating in their day-by-day life. And that's who James is writing to. People that are saved, 15 times he calls them brethren, but they are spiritually sick. Let's take a few moments this morning and notice this sickness that James is describing. Well, he begins where any good physician would begin. He begins by identifying the symptoms of this sickness. Notice verse number one with me. James says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. James describes a dysfunctional Christian in these three verses. There's a lot of Christians that are dysfunctional. Their Christianity is, it ain't functioning the way it's supposed to function. 
And he's describing the dysfunction of their Christianity. Or like a physician would, he is uh, examining the symptoms of their spiritual sickness. And notice there's three things that he points to. Number one, he points to the fact that their peace was disturbed. He says in verse number one that they are warring and fighting among themselves. Can I tell you this? One of the first things that happens when your walk with God slides is you lose your peace. Peace is a fragile thing. Peace depends upon us walking in the center of God's will and resting squarely upon the providence of His hand and His leadership. And it does not take much for your peace to become disturbed. Part of the reason we live in such a high tensile society as we do is because people have no peace. And it does not take much to disrupt the peace of a person who's not walking with God. Your peace, if you're not walking with the Lord, will be purely circumstantial. And I don't know if you've learned this yet, but uh, circumstances don't stay the same very long in this life. If your peace is situational, it's dependent upon what's in your bank account. It's dependent upon what's on your calendar. It's dependent upon uh, what's on your uh, appointment book. If that's where your peace comes from, your peace will not last very long. And when a person is robbed of the peace that they enjoy with the Lord, you say, preacher, nothing can take my peace with God. Absolutely. You're never going to lose your peace with God, but you can lose the peace of God. Uh, the Bible describes the peace of the believer in three senses. There's peace with God. That happened when you got born again. You were enemies with God and you were reconciled to God by the cross of Jesus Christ. And now you have peace with God. But then it also describes the peace that we have in God. We have peace in God. In other words, because of our special status by being situated in the person of Jesus Christ, when we live within the fullness and realization of that truth, then we are resting in the peace that we have in God. But then he talks about the peace of God. That's the peace that God imparts to His people when they're following Him. That's the peace that Paul said passeth all understanding. There's going to be times if you're living for God that you won't have no reason to have peace except Him. And He's enough reason to have peace. But for these believers, the moment that their walk with God begins to degrade and decline, the first thing that happens is their peace is robbed. I'd ask you this morning, do you have peace in your heart? Do you have peace in your life? Can you rest yourself on His promise? Can you rest yourself in His providence? And if you cannot, I challenge you to ask this question, why can't I? I can tell you there's been times in my life that I've not had the peace of God in my life because I knew that uh, trouble and trial could befall me at any time because I'm walking in disobedience to God. And you say, well, preacher, bad things happen to people that are serving the Lord. Yeah, that's true, but they're able to approach it with an entirely different perspective. They're able to look at it and view it and say, now, I don't understand this. And I didn't ask for it, but I know this isn't the chastening of God because I'm living in obedience to God. So it must be that God has a plan for what I'm going through. There's times in our life, if we're living in disobedience to the Lord, that we will question and wonder when calamity comes into our life. Why is this happening to me? Is it happening to me as the fruit of my own bad decisions? Is it happening to me as God chastening me to get my attention? But for the believer whose life with God is in a right condition, they can rest knowing, hey, God is perfecting me and working in my life that which pleases Him. I see, number one, their peace was disturbed. But then notice verse 2. He says this, ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have. I think I've been to that church before, amen. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. And then here is the most 
condemning statement. Here's the real indictment of their walk with God. Yet you have not because you ask not. I'd notice the first symptom of this sickness is their peace was disturbed. But the second is this. Their prayers were disrupted. They quit praying. And here's what Paul, what James says. I'll say Paul about half a dozen times this morning. But that ain't my fault. Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. James only wrote one. It's his fault. Amen. But James, in writing to him, here's, here's what he's getting at. He's saying, uh, there's things that you ought not have and you desire and lust after them and you can't get no peace about them because you ain't prayed and gotten the mind of God on them. And then there's things that God doesn't mind you having, uh, but you refuse to go to God and ask Him for those things. And so you lust and you have not. You kill and fight and, and, and desire and try to obtain and you have not. And he said, all this would have been fixed if you would have just come to the Lord in prayer about these things. I will tell you that probably the first external or visible matter of our walk with God that suffers whenever we begin to walk in disobedience is our prayer life. I don't know why that's the case. I suppose it's because prayer is a purely spiritual matter when it's done in the biblical manner. It really is not something that involves itself with the attention or accolades or approval of man, but it's something that is purely an act and and, an exercise of faith in our walk with God. And so it is easily the first thing that we neglect when things go wrong. Can I just give you own testimony from my life? I don't know. You can contradict me if this isn't true for you. Uh, But I'll tell you, when I'm wrong with God, I just quit praying. You listen to me this morning? You listen, I need a little help this morning. I gotta go up and, and live with all these stinky kids for a week. I need a little help this morning. You're gonna sit back here in air conditioning. The least you can do is amen me before you walk me right off, watch me right off in the sunset. Amen. I don't know if I'll make it back this year. First thing that happens, man, is our prayers begin to suffer. And when I say prayers, I don't mean in the sense of, you know, a little nursery rhyme. I mean our prayer life just flatlines. You want to know whether your walk with God is is where it needs to be. Look at your prayer life. Am I talking to God on a regular basis? Am I bringing my burdens and my troubles to Him? I love our prayer meeting that we had. I was thinking about it. I don't know. That might have been the 10th anniversary one. I I have no idea uh, if it was or not. It seems sort of disconsonant with a prayer meeting to brag about how many years you've been having a prayer meeting. So I ain't going to brag about how many years you've been having it. But I'm just saying we've done it quite a few times. And it's always a blessing. I always think when we're going into it, preacher, you're crazy. I talk to myself sometimes. I am crazy. Preacher, you're crazy. You're going to drag these people up Big Ridge and ask them to get up there and sweat and, and, and put up these kids for a week, but you want them to do it on no sleep? What's the matter with you? But every time that we do it, God meets with us in a special way. And there's something precious about... And, and, and let me just thank the church publicly. We had, as has been the case for quite a few numbers of years, we didn't have a single no-show. We didn't have a single person wasn't there for uh, where they're supposed to be. We didn't have to have anybody filling gaps that weren't filled. Praise the Lord for that. But how easy it is to neglect the matter of prayer. And when we, uh, prayer's funny, man, because the less you pray, the easier it is to not pray. And the more you pray, the easier it is to pray. And the first thing that'll happen, you see, when something's wrong with you and the Lord, is all of a sudden now you got something to not talk about. And you'll begin to look for opportunities to avoid having to talk to. If you have an honest, sincere, genuine bone in your body, you won't like the idea of talking to Him and ignoring that. And so instead what you'll do is just quit talking altogether. You see, the fact is, uh, just as not praying leads to not praying, 
an absence of, uh, of attention to our prayer life, it cultivates spiritual sickness. But likewise, spiritual sickness will encourage a neglect of our prayer life. And you see, it's a real simple equation. How's your prayer life? Are you praying? Are you talking to Him? He points to the fact that their peace was disturbed and their prayers were disrupted. But then notice verse 3. He says, ye ask and receive not. Well, wait a minute. Brother James, I thought you said they weren't praying. Well, he says some of them are praying, but here's the problem. They ask and they receive not. Now, why is that? Because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. This is interesting. Is James indicting every person that doesn't have a prayer answered? I don't think so. I think the fact is, often as we pray, there are things we desire and pray for that it's not the will of God concerning. But, you know, the Lord Jesus gave us the perfect example of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he asked for something that is not the will of God. We know that because God did not grant it to him. He says, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But oh, what meaning there is in that little phrase, if it be thy will. Can I tell you something to breathe life into your prayer life? Submit it to the will of God and you'll never have an unanswered prayer. Now, you'd be tempted to say, why, preacher, that's just a little trick of the mind. That's just fine print you're putting into your prayer life so you never have to feel bad. I don't think that's what the Lord Jesus was doing. I think he was saying this, Lord, I have a desire, but I desire your desire above all other desires. And James is not indicting those that have unanswered prayers in their life. But what he's saying is this, when you pray, you're not praying for the will of God. And because of that, there's a great many things that you never receive. Let's say it this way. Their peace was disturbed. Their prayers were disrupted, but their priorities were distorted. They'd pray, but why did they pray? That they may consume it upon their own lusts. Now, that does not mean that there's a paradigm in prayer that we can't pray for things that we would enjoy. But it does mean this, that as we pray for things, our ultimate goal should always be to see the will of God brought to fruition in our lives. And I'll tell you this, the moment that your walk with God begins to decline, one of the first symptoms, your peace will be disturbed, your prayers will be disrupted. But all of a sudden, you'll care a lot more about what you got going on than you will about what God's got going on. It won't be about what He wants out of your life. It'll be about your life and, and about what you desire out of it, your plans and your ambitions. One of the most corrosive uh, concepts in Christianity today, and it's pervasive, it's in churches all over the country and all over this county, is this idea, this perspective that God is our life coach, that we have somehow engaged with so that He can help us achieve our ambitions and dreams. You can see it. I mean, social media drips with it in the Christianity that people paint social media with. This idea that God's got my back and God's here to promote me and God's here to endorse me and God is here to promote my life and to elevate and to exalt me. And I'll tell you this, hey, listen, if we'll humble ourselves, the Lord will lift us up. But there is no question, your life is not about you uh, carrying out your ambitions and your desires with the help of God, but rather it's about with the help of God, you carrying out God's desires and ambitions for your life. And in your walk with the Lord, one of the first things that will happen, your priorities will get all messed up. It's part of the reason people get out of church. I'm just going to say it again. You know, when you don't help me preach, it's easier for me to be mean. That ain't a threat. I'm just saying how it is, all right? If you're going to look at me like you're angry anyway, I might as well make you angry. That's part of the reason people get out of church. You see, nobody ever just wakes up one day in a perfect right condition with God and says, I'm quitting church. 
What happened? Well, they allowed a spiritual sickness to go undealt with in their heart and in their life. And finally, it got to a place that it began to rearrange their priorities. All of a sudden, it wasn't about what God expected and desired and wanted out of their life. It was about their own plans and ambitions and desires. God's not against you having plans, ambitions, and desires, but all those must be made subject to the will of God. Everything in your life ought to be, Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but Thy will. But one of the key symptoms of spiritual sickness is it no longer becomes about the will of God in our life, but it's me and my desires and what I want out of my life. And that's part of the reason people get out of church is they no longer have to explain their bad decisions to anyone. They no longer have to sit and explain even to themselves their bad decision that they know is wrong, that they know they have priorities disconsonant with Bible Christianity because they've gotten as far away from Bible Christianity as they can so they can live a life unchecked by their conscience and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Man, I I look at this, I, I see the symptoms of this sickness, but I want you to notice the diagnosis of this sickness. Now, it's one thing to find out what's wrong, but it's another thing to find out why it's wrong. If you don't know the distinction, thank God for your good health and young age. Because you'll get to a place in life, and this is, I'll just tell you this, maybe this will enlighten you a little bit. When you're young, you have this very, very linear and, and, and this very, very black and white perspective on health. Because you think to yourself, I'm sick, I go take this medicine, this medicine makes me better, now I am better. And that's how your life is when you're young. Got a headache, go take a Tylenol or eight of them, and then you feel better. But you get to an age in life where you realize it ain't that clean cut. All of a sudden, you know, you've, you've done got creative with the things that are wrong with you and, 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 Now, all of a sudden, taking this to fix this is going to break that. (laughs) And there's no clear-cut answer. There's no simple solution. And it feels, you know, much less like, you know, just walking through a door and much more like juggling live chainsaws. And it's not a simple thing in your life anymore. And it's not just enough to know what's wrong. You've got to know why it's wrong. So that you can get to a solution. And James, he doesn't just point out what's wrong. He points out how they got there. He say, all right, preacher, I'm convinced this morning. My life's not where it needs to be. My walk with God's not what it needs to be. What can I do about it? How'd this happen? Well, James tells us. Notice here in verse number four. He says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. That's what God said. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. I don't have any reason to believe that any of these people have done anything immoral within the confines of the marriage bed. That certainly would make them adulterers or adulteresses. But James is not talking about people that have engaged, but he's speaking in a spiritual sense. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. That wouldn't fly in most churches. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He points to the fact that somewhere within their walk, the paradigm had shifted. They used to view themselves as standing on God's side and the world on that opposite side. But at some point in this process, they stepped over that line and began to view the world as a friend. I want you to listen very carefully to me. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. He does not say fellowship with the world. He says friendship with the world. 
Now you say, preacher, what's the distinction? Well, we understand that fellowship with the world is enmity with God. That if I engage with what the world's doing, that that's going to cause a problem between me and the Lord. But that's not what James says. He says friendship. Taking a friendly tack to the world system is going to put you at enmity with God. You say, well, preacher, that's a hard line to take. Yeah, I don't know why the world takes that line. I don't know why the world hates God so much, but it does. And that being the case, we have a choice that has to be made. And James says, here's the problem. At a certain point, you made a decision that your relationship with the world was more important than your relationship with God, and you quit walking with God and started to walk with the world. In other words, let's say it this way. Well, how'd they get in this shape? Well, he points to a failure in fellowship. They quit walking with God and started walking with the world. You say, well, preacher, I can do both. Not according to the Bible, you cannot. Two, two cannot walk together except they be agreed. That's the question the Old Testament prophet Matt can, can two walk together except they be agreed? That, that's, a, that's a hypothetical question, the answer to which is no. It's a rhetorical question. The answer to which is no. They cannot walk together except they be agreed. In other words, somewhere along the line, you let your fellowship with God decline. Nobody, this is a precious truth, people didn't stay sick in the presence of Jesus. People didn't die in the presence of Jesus. Where Jesus showed up, people got healed and people got raised. People got lifted up. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, your spiritual walk will not decline if you fellowship with the Lord. There's all kinds of people peddling books trying to give you the secret to spiritual thriving and success. And uh, isn't it interesting? Wouldn't you think if those books had anything to them, they would have quit, you know, making new ones? I mean, if they're like, here's the secret, and you're like, okay, now I know the secret, and then here comes this guy saying, here's the secret. If you already had the secret, you'd say, that secret ain't no secret. I already have the secret. You with me? But they got you know, bills to pay, so they keep making books and things like that. It's really not a complicated thing. If you'll stay close to God and walk with Him, you will spiritually succeed. If you will stay close to God and walk with Him, you will spiritually succeed. Our spiritual failures are directly connected to an absence of fellowship with Him. They're directly connected to us allowing our, our, our walk with Him and our prayer life and our communion with Him to stagnate. And James says the problem is somewhere along the line you crossed a line and you said, I will not walk with God, I will walk with the world. He points to a failure fellowship. But then look at verse number 5. This is a fascinating verse. He says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us, in us lusteth to envy? He's quoting an Old Testament passage. What is James communicating with this thought? He's saying this, the Spirit of God that dwelleth in us, He will not allow us to walk with the world without it making Him jealous. Jealousy is a funny concept. Jealousy has been cast as being a negative uh, characteristic in all of, of society. In the <laughs> Where can I walk? Hmm. <laughs> Jealousy is all about perspective, you understand. You see, the fact is, we don't call a person jealous over something they actually own. If a thief broke into your house and began to walk out with your television, and you stopped him and said, hey, thief, stop. That's how you'd say it. Hey, thief, stop. 
And they looked at you and said, well, yeah, you could say it that way. We are a stand-your-ground state. But if that thief turned around and looked at you and said, what are you being so jealous over this TV for? You just, you wouldn't even know what to say. You'd just look at him. Bang is what you'd say. Oh, you people make me nervous. My soul, i got to preach to you people. And you already just dropped somebody because they're still in your television. Amen? What would you do to a preacher made you mad? We'll find out. But I, in other words, jealousy. You see, the Bible talks about jealousy and says that the Lord is a jealous God. Now, his jealousy, and, and there's all sorts of anthropomorphic language that's used about the Lord attributing to him human qualities and, and, and attributes. But you see, jealousy in the Lord's hands is not a bad thing because he's a pure, perfect, holy and righteous God. And he's never unduly jealous. He owns us. He has a right to be jealous over us. The Spirit of God that indwells you is jealous over you. When you begin to walk with the world, He says, Hey, what you doing spending as so much time in the world's house? He begins to, He begins, Hey, listen, He knows, He knows what's on your phone. He's been reading your text messages. He's been looking at your browser history. He knows the conversations you've been having. He knows the thoughts been going through your mind. And, and, and He, listen, He lusts to envy. So much so that if he sees you giving attention to the world instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will let you know about it. Now, why does James say it here? He's pointing to this. What happened in their life? Well, there was a failure of fellowship. But number two, there was a failure of following. He's saying, you didn't stumble out of the will of God. You began to walk out of the will of God. Then the Spirit of God met you at the door and ran, read you the riot act. And you pushed him aside and walked out the door anyway. In other words, he's saying, don't give me this thing if you didn't know. Because the Spirit of God that indwells you knows, and he will inform you when you're doing wrong. It's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit that Christ deals with. He's tasked to reprove us of sin. It's what he does. It's one of his jobs is when we sin, when we do wrong, he knocks on our door. He rings our bell and says, excuse me, sir, you know that that was wrong. James is envisioning a group of people that would say, well, you know, James, we just didn't know. Pastor, we didn't know. We had no clue. James says, I'm not listening to that because you've got the same spirit of God in you that I've got in me. And the same spirit of God that convicts me of doing those things you're doing has convicted you of doing those things, but you disregarded his dealing in your life. In other words, you say, preacher, uh, boy, it's hard. No, it's not hard. You just got to follow. You just got to follow. I remember being a child. My my daddy would give me instructions and and give me guidance. And I, I remember. I mean, I, I had I have a good relationship with my dad. And uh, but but still, he was my dad. And I, I remember he he would tell you know he'd be working on something, and he'd say, "Go in there and get me a half inch wrench out of the garage." And that was terrifying to me as a child because it was always accompanied by this: "If you don't bring me back a half inch wrench, I'm gonna give you a whipping." I'd look for every wrench I could find. And you didn't want to bring them all of them. That'd just make him worse mad. You had to bring the right one. And heaven help you if you walked back in and said, there ain't one. I didn't find one. Because then he'd always say this, if I go in there and find it. <laughs> Give us simple instructions and follow them. I remember being a child, him working on the car and having to hold a flashlight. We'll talk about something that will give a child PTSD. Dad making you hold the flashlight while he works on some. I don't know what it is about an eight-year-old boy that makes him incapable. Probably just nervous, you know. 
and, and, and trying to hold that flashlight. And he'd say, hold it right there, hold it right there. And he'd say, if you just follow instructions. I didn't know how to fix the car. I didn't have to know. I just had to follow instructions. I didn't know how to fix the, 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 the water heater, but I didn't have to. I just had to know which wrench to go get. I just had to know what instructions to follow. And here's what James is saying. He's saying it's not hard. You just have to follow instructions. Some of us have always and still to this day have a real hard time following instructions. We do. God gives us plain, simple instructions. We know what's true. We know what's right. But it's the way of the flesh. The flesh, uh, listen, it, it, it doesn't receive the things of God. They're spiritually received. They're spiritually discerned. The flesh hates it and despises it. And he's saying the problem in this is not that you're some kind of, uh, of, 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 of spiritual imbecile, nor is the problem that you lack spiritual aptitude. He said it really just came down to the fundamental problem of you not following God. Hey, we all sin. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. Don't think you're special in that respect. But when we do, it is incumbent upon us to get it right with God. There was a failure in following. But then notice verse number 6. He says this, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Grace, God's unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. God giving to us something that we do not deserve. What does it mean in the context of this passage? Well, James is imagining a group of people. And he's seeing that they're miserable, they're unhappy, they're bitter, they're sour. Their prayer life has has completely flatlined. Their priorities are all mixed up, messed up. And he says, I know how you got in this shape. You got in this shape because you you quit fellowshipping with God. You quit walking with Him. And then He dealt with you and you refused to follow Him. But James says, you know, even a person in that shape is not lost beyond hope. They are not without help because God gives grace to those that will humble themselves before Him. You say, preacher, I'm all messed up, spiritually messed up. Everything's just twisted up, knotted up, and I'm just in a bad way. Can I tell you, there's hope, and there's encouragement, and there's promise for you today, but here's what it's going to require. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to humble yourself. Let's say it this way. How'd they get in this shape? Well, there was a failure in following. There was a failure of fellowship, but there was a failure of forfeit. They were too prideful to surrender to God and to seek forgiveness. God abases the proud. He exalts the humble. This is a basic principle, a, a, a basic principle of our universe. It's, it, it's, it's as, as concrete as, as the laws of physics or thermodynamics that, that God, if we approach Him in pride, He will abase us. But if we will approach Him in humility, in confession and contrition, then He will exalt us. He said, the problem is not that you messed up. Everybody messes up. The problem is when you messed up and God pointed it out to you, instead of humbling yourself and asking God's forgiveness, you bowed up on Him. He's been reading my mail, man. I mean, if that ain't me and a picture of me, I don't know what is. And so He points to the diagnosis. He says, this is how you got in this situation. Now, I'm glad it doesn't stop there. I'm going to be honest with you, and this is part of the reason I don't go to the doctor. All they do is tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, the, the <laughs> oh my. Tread carefully here, Toby. Be careful. All right. There's bear traps everywhere. You start going to the doctor, they start finding things wrong with you. I understand there's times when you go to the doctor. I'm not being a cynic. I'm not being critical of it. But I am just saying, you know, it's in their vested interest to find things wrong with you. I don't know if you know this. They get paid for trying to fix you. 
And uh, it's in their interest to find things about you to fix. Uh, same, mm, anyway. I, that's the reason I don't want to go to the doctor. All they want to do is tell me how sick I am. Amen. It don't help if they can't tell you how to get better. I'm glad Dr. James here, he don't just tell us what's wrong, he tells us how to get better. And we have in this passage the remedy for this sickness. And he gives us a few principles. I just want you to notice them. We're going to run through them quick. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. First thing is concession. you got to bow the knee. you got to bow the knee. It'll help you if you'll get used to bowing the knee to God. If you can learn to be comfortable with that. If you can learn, your flesh will never be comfortable with it. But if you can learn to be comfortable with how uncomfortable your flesh is with it, you will have done a great thing in your life. Because if your life's going to be right with God, you're going to have, He's the King. You are the servant. He is the master. You are the disciple. He is the Lord. You are His. And so the sooner you can get comfortable with the fact that you're going to be bowing the knee to Him a lot, the happier your life is going to be. And I will tell you in my life, this is the watershed moment. And, and I mean, I, you've probably experienced this. I guarantee you do if you, if you have a pulse and you know Christ is your Savior, where you get all messed up, your walk with God is not what it needs to be, and you're in that standoff with God where you don't want to admit that you're wrong, because if you admit that you're wrong, you're going to have to get right. And if you get right, you're going to have to give up what got you wrong in the first place. And you're just not ready to do it. Sometimes it can be some active sin you're engaged in. Sometimes it can be an emotional state you find yourself in. You ever just been not done being mad yet? Let me get an amen, ladies. I just ain't done being mad yet. And sometimes we just ain't done being unhappy yet. Sometimes we can take our misery and wrap it around us like a security blanket. We can take our bitterness and pillow our head on it. The grace of God's trying to take it from us, but we don't want to give it up yet. We still have a right, as if we ever had any right. We still have a right to be angry. We still have a right to be bitter. We still have a right to be sour. We don't want to give it up yet. And and here's what it, and we're in that standoff with God. You know when things change. When we finally get so sick of our life being a mess, that we're willing to come to Him and bow the knee and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done. I'm waving the flag. God, I'll bow the knee. You're right. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. Lord, I've done wrong. It takes concession is the first thing. But then notice the end of verse number 7 is commitment. He says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want you to notice carefully what your Bible says there. It does not say recite scripture and he'll flee from you. It does not say sing songs and he'll flee from you. It does not say speak a word of faith and he will flee from you. Now, I'm not against you reciting scripture. I'm not against you singing songs. But none of that has any power or impact without what the Bible says, which is resist. Resist. In other words, quoting scripture, singing songs, speaking statements of faith or truisms from the Bible... Uh, those are all, I think, good things. I think they're to your health and to your benefit. But none of it will mean anything if at the same time we are actively seeding our life and surrendering our life to the devil. We've got to resist him. If we will resist him, guess what he'll do? He'll flee from us. You know why that is? Because we like the capacity to resist him in and of ourselves. But God gives grace. God giveth grace. God giveth grace. Isn't that what James said there? But he giveth grace. And all of a sudden, when he starts showing up and giving grace, the devil is outmatched and outclassed. Because you're not greater than him, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
It's going to take commitment. We have to resist the devil. What got you into this mess? Not resisting him. What will get you out of it? Well, part of it is resisting him. Then look at verse number 8. He says this, draw nigh to God. and He will draw nigh to you. You see, you're sitting there waiting on him to draw nigh to you. But it does not say he'll draw nigh to you and then you'll draw nigh to him. It says draw nigh to him and he'll draw nigh to you. Now, I'm thankful. Hey, listen. When it came to the matter of my salvation, thank God that God made the first move. Because I never would have. I didn't know I was lost. I didn't know I was a sinner. I I was raised with an intellectual awareness of the gospel. I knew it better than half the preachers in town know it. I could have led someone else to the Lord. But I didn't understand and know that I was lost and needed to be saved until God showed me that I was lost. I knew it as an academic fact, but it had no impact in my life. I hadn't appropriated that truth to me personally such that I recognize I'm lost. Not just a person is lost. I am, put my name, Toby Weber, was lost and needed to be saved. I'm glad he made the first move. But you understand, mm, his first move was his last first move. You listening to me? His first move was his last first move. He will not chase you. We like to be chased. We like the idea, the attention, the flattery. But the fact is, God's not going to chase you. You're going to have to draw nigh to Him if you want Him to draw nigh to you. This is completely contrary to every Hollywood notion of what love entails and implies and is. But it is the truth and reality of life. As you deal with people and have relationships in life, you'll recognize that sometimes when you chase people, all you're doing is hurting them more than helping them. God illustrates this truth to us in the Word of God and in His eternal character long before our personal experience ever revealed it to us. He'll not draw nigh to us unless we'll draw nigh to Him. But if we'll draw nigh to Him, then He's promised He'll draw nigh to us. What's going to have to happen? You're going to have to pick back up that fellowship that you laid down. You laid that fellowship down when you began to walk with the world. You're going to have to pick that fellowship right back up and begin to walk with Him. He he mentions communion. Then look at verse 8. He says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your heart, you double-minded. Church God would say a saved person can't be a sinner. Charismatics would say a saved person can't be a sinner. But James talking to saved people, and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. You sinners. In other words, a saved person can sin. You all right this morning? You with me this morning? Sometimes saved people sin. If you don't believe that, hang around them sometimes. They sin sometimes. And what must they do? Cleanse your hands. In other words, change your actions. Hands are are implements, tools of action. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, there must be cleansing in your life. It's funny. What we want is we want God to make us right with Him without taking away from us the things that made us wrong with Him. But the truth of the matter is we can't have both ways. We teach that to our children at a very young age, but somehow we selectively shed that knowledge as we get older, but it's going to take cleansing. It's going to take confession to God. It's going to take repentance. It's going to take turning a change of the mind and perspective and opinion about your sin. He mentions cleansing. Then look at verse 9. He says this, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. This is distinctly Old Testament language that James is using. And in fact, the entire book of James has this Old Testament sort of ring or tenor to it all the way through. Not surprising for a man that was so aware and indoctrinated in the Old Testament prophets to have picked up some of those same concepts and ideas. And when we read this, it don't sound like a fun Christianity. I'm going to be honest with you. 
This don't sound like the church I'd want to go to most of the time. But understand that when things are wrong with the Lord, there's something to mourn about. When our life is not right with God, there's something to be afflicted about. Can I just, let me defend the Lord for a moment. He don't need it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. He didn't show up and make you miserable. You was miserable before he showed up. They were already fighting and warring. They were already miserable. They were already afflicted and mourning and weeping and with great heaviness. But it was just over the wrong things. They were mourning and miserable and had great heaviness because their walk with God was all messed up. And he said, if you'd learn to be broken, one writer said it this way, we'll never be broken from our sin till we're broken over our sin. Until we are bothered by our disobedience to God, we will not change our disobedience to God. We should be bothered. We should be bothered that how we're living bothers God. Our heart should break that we've broken His heart. And until we take our disobedience seriously will not have our right life put in a right condition. He mentions contrition, but then verse 10, he mentions condescension. He says this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. In other words, let's summarize it in this way. James says, you're going to have to come to him and admit that what you did was wrong. You're going to have to quit doing what you've been doing that is wrong. You're going to have to ask him for forgiveness. You're going to have to be bothered and broken over your sin. You're going to have to humble yourself. But guess what? If you'll do that, he'll lift you out of that spiritual sickbed. He'll heal all that in your spiritual walk with him that's broken and degraded and debilitated and declined. Listen, we don't have to live spiritually sick. We don't have to live in misery and unhappiness. I'm sometimes deeply bothered by how consistently unhappy some Christians are. I mean, listen, man, I, the God, you're saved by the grace of God. You're on the winning side of this thing. Why would we walk around constantly miserable? I mean, we're saved by the grace of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. God don't want you to go through life spiritually anemic. You can if you purpose to, and He won't make you do otherwise because He respects your free will. But you don't have to live that way. We shouldn't want to live that way. I'm glad to report to you today, whatever is wrong with your spiritual walk, it can be made right today. There's grace to make it right. Preacher, I've messed up. Yeah, but he giveth more grace. More what? More than your sin. He giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. Preacher, I've messed up. You have no idea. I know he giveth more grace. Preacher, I've been like this a long time. I know he giveth more grace. In other words, you and I are without excuse to leave our lives in a wrong condition with God. If you're here lost today and you leave lost, it'll be because you decided to do so. Not because God wouldn't save you. And if you're here and your walk with Him is messed up, maybe in a major way, maybe in a minor way, but you leave in that same condition, it won't be because there wasn't grace enough for you. It'll be because you chose to walk out and push past the Holy Ghost on your way out the back door and say, I'll keep walking and living this way. Thank God we don't have to stay that way. There's help. Hey, there's a balm in Gilead. There's healing in Him. There's a salve in the Savior if we'll just come to Him and let Him work. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. It's time to do business with God. We've been preaching about it for 30, 40 minutes. It's time to, now's the time. This is the moment. God dealt with your heart. He's dealing with your life about something. Now's the time. Now's the moment. You need to avail yourself of it. Say, but preacher, couldn't I talk to God when I get home? Yeah, but if you won't talk to Him now, you probably won't then either. 
there's no better place and no better time and no better moment. God's dealing with your heart. Take this moment, this time, and meet him in the altar. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.